Good morning, everyone. Welcome this morning, Bethany. Glad that you're with us as we continue in a series on Palm Sunday here about Jesus' relationship with time. And in particular this morning, Jesus makes this profound statement, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So for us to enter into that hour with Christ and hear what God has to say to us, please join me in prayer. Father, we'd like to thank you that we can gather here listening for your voice this morning, and we trust and pray and ask that your Holy Spirit would teach us that that you would shape us, Father, to be people uh, who are willing to follow you and live in union with you to such an end, Father, that all that you would desire to reveal through us would pour through us into our families and into our neighborhoods and into our city and into our world. So we invite your Holy Spirit to be here moving among us, Father, speaking to us, and we'll thank you for the fruit of that as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, who lived in Seattle in 1995? Would you raise your hand if you were here in 1995? This is a tiny minority of us. So this, uh, what I'm about to do, may not be relevant to you, but uh, Seattle had a moment, a, a shining moment of sports glory and I'm going to just share that moment with you here. And some of us will listen wistfully, longingly, and with great joy. Listen to what happened in October of 1995. And the 0-1 pitcher on the way to Edgar Martinez. One on the line, that'll lift me a lot for OBC. Here comes Joy. Here is Junior to third base. They're going to wave him in. The throw to the plate will be late. The Mariners are going to play. Oh, man. I could listen to that a hundred times. I was a candidate uh, for Bethany in October 1995. I was interviewing, and they had a dinner set up for the, uh, with, the, with the elders at the time. And I said, we have to find a restaurant that has a TV because there's a playoff game on. That's not good employment advice, just so you know. But I didn't really want the job, so it worked. Like for me, I, like whatever, yeah, I, want, I don't want to miss the game. I can miss this job, but I don't want to miss the game. And that's what happened. Amazing, right? And we call that, uh, the glory, we call that glory days. We call those the glory days. And we're going to uh, hone in this morning the word glory. And really, uh, what we'd like to do together is contrast kind of a human understanding of glory with Christ's understanding of glory. And this is significant, I think, for all of us, because when we use the phrase glory days, we look back longingly on a time when, like us personally, or our family, or our nation, or our people group, was in a position of ascendancy. And, and, and so the Mariners had glory days, 1995, again in 2001, maybe this year, again, 13 and 4 now, I believe, which is pretty amazing. And, but it, it's how you end the story that matters the most, not how you start, but we'll see. We'll see what happens. But when, you, like when you're looking back and wanting that glory to return, then you're wanting things to be, like, again, great. Make Britain great again, Brexit. Make Rwanda great again. In the wake of uh, the Belgian uh, exit from Rwanda, we're going we're to make it great again, and then genocide. Make Jerusalem great again. 
And then the Maccabean revolt and, 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 and deeper losses for Israel, third century BC. Like, what does it mean to make something great again? And this is not a political statement. It's beyond politics. Like our desire to return to days of glory, whether personal, familial, as a city, as a sports team, as a nation, our desires to return to days of glory are understandable. But if we fail to align our understanding of glory with God's definition of glory, we set ourselves up for loss and, 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 and sorrow. So in today's text, John 12... I'd like to share with you three facets of glory, and we'll go through these to see these facets in order that we might understand God's definition of glory, because all of us are invited to a life of reflecting nothing less than the glory of God. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. From glory to glory to glory, we're invited to be like these beacons, these lights of glory shining in a dark world. But if we don't understand what glory means, we set off on a path that will not result in God's glory, but human glory, that'll be destructive. So three facets of glory, the glory of God emerging through Christ, the conventional glory expected on Palm Sunday, as we'll see, and then Jesus redefining glory. Glory emerging, conventional glory expected, Jesus redefining glory. Let's look at these beginning with the glory emerging. And to understand the emerging glory, what I want to do is take you back and help you see that uh, all through the Gospel of John, as we've seen a little bit in our time together these past few weeks, uh, Jesus has been performing miracles that were uniquely in John called sign miracles. In other words, in all the other gospels, there's a word for miracle that is kind of, uh, the miracle is a display of God's power, but in John, the miracles performed by Jesus are not just a display of God's power, but a display of God's character. In other words, every miracle in John displays something of the character of God. And what we discover in these miracles is that uh, Jesus is... With each miracle, uh, gaining some followers until, until the end, but gaining followers for the wrong reasons. And in particular, the wrong reason, if I could generalize, the wrong reason is this. As Jesus would perform a miracle, people would begin to go, wow, look, not only look who he is, but almost being dismissive of who he is, people are thinking this way. Look what Jesus can, watch this, look what Jesus can do for me. Look what Jesus can do for me. That's infatuation. Uh, and some of you in the room who are married, uh, you begin marriage with infatuation, right? You, like you fell in love with somebody and you're like this, look what this person can do for me. I remember uh, my wife, uh, Donna, before she was my wife, she came down to Fresno and visited me and we made a day trip to Yosemite. We, we were both in college here at Seattle Pacific University. We made a day trip to Yosemite. And uh, I put uh, chains on the car because there was snow on the way up. And on the way down, when I took the chains off, I released the outer part of the chain, but not the part on the inside, on the inside of the tire. So I, I get out of the car, all proud of my masculinity, and take the outer part off and leave the inner part on, and then we begin driving, and the chains wrap around the axle. And we can't go anywhere. And I'm like waiting 
for my, not even fiance at that point, but just this woman who I think I might want to marry, I'm waiting for her to go, oh, I knew it. You're just like all the other guys, or worse. You can't do anything right. You know, you always blow it, blah, 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 because that's been my story. <laughs> you know, fingers and gavels and all that stuff. And then, and then, uh, then I was like, this, well, this will be an adventure. And I was like, will you marry me? <laughs> like, look what you can do for me. You can give me the freedom to fail. That's a good quality. But I'm going to tell you this. Infatuation is unsustainable, right? And so people are infatuated with Jesus. Oh, he turned water into wine. That's uh, case study number one. Man, if he can do that, it's said in the text. Many believed in his name because they observed the signs which he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. In other words, yeah, oh, this guy's amazing. Look what he can do what? For me, I want in on this thing. But Jesus is not impressed that people are believing because Jesus knows how fickle humans are. Jesus knows that we jump on movements and then we jump off just as quickly depending on whether the movement is trendy or not, depending on what the movement does for us. And this is not what Jesus seeks. He's not seeking to build a movement. He's not seeking to be a trend. He's not even seeking popularity. He wants those who will unite their lives with him and love him for better and for worse, and there will be worse. But if it's infatuation, you don't see that. All you see is what that person can do for you. So case study number one, Jesus turns water into wine, big crowd. Case study number two, John 6, Jesus produces enough bread for 5,000 people with just a couple of loaves of bread. And then people respond this way. Truly this is, with definite article, the prophet who's coming to the world. So Jesus is popular. And what, this is so interesting. Jesus perceiving their intent to take him by force and make him king escaped to the mountains alone. In other words, oh, like the momentum is building. I've got a crowd now. Of course, what should we do? Let's get out of here. Because we don't want to build a movement. So Jesus left. And then uh, when he spoke again to the crowd, John chapter 6, verse 66, as a result of Jesus speaking, it says, many turned back and no longer followed because this is what Jesus said. He said, hey, you came to me, not because you believe, but because I perform miracles. I am to you a baker, like I'm the divine baker. You're hungry, I'm bread. You're thirsty, I'm wine. Your marriage is busted, I'm your therapist. You're broke, I'm your financial advisor. You're sick, I'm your physician. And here's Jesus, look, I can do all of that but I don't want you to follow me because I'm a commodity. In fact, I won't have it. I'm calling you not to use me. I'm calling you to, to live in union with me, right? So that you live the way I live and, and the way I live is in union with the Father and so my life is utterly given over to the will of another. I'm asking you to give your will over to, 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 to my will in the same way that I give my will over to the Father and it says as a result of that, John 6, 6, 6, many turn back no longer following. Yeah, look, if he's the baker, we're in. If he's the vintner, we're in. If he's the healer, the marriage therapist, the financial advisor, we're in. But union, uh, no thanks. 
In chapter 9, Jesus heals a guy born blind. And that creates not many more believers, but a rising tide of opposition as well among the religious leaders at the time. And they want to know, you know, how, why did Jesus do this on the, on the Sabbath? And is he the Messiah? And, and uh, the, it's, it's apparent in John 9 that the leaders of, of Judaism are now threatened by the presence of Jesus. And then that threat uh, really comes to its highlight in case study number four, where Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. So Jesus sees that Lazarus is dead, and he says, hey, I'm glad, I'm glad he's dead, actually. I'm glad he's dead. In the same way that he's glad that they ran out of wine, in the same way he's glad that there's not enough bread, in the same way he's glad that the man was born blind, Jesus moves into the realities of the fallen world to offer all that he is so that we might experience the healing, transforming provision of Christ... So we, like Jesus, don't need to, to wish for a perfect world because every intrusion of the fall is a chance for God to intervene. All good. But here's the thing. Jesus prays, Lazarus walks out of the tomb, and it says in the text, John 11, many believed. Right? So many believed. Why? Why did they believe? Well, here's why. They believed because our hearts are longing for life. We love stories of transformation. We love stories of healing, we, uh, stories of light, stories of hope, stories of resurrection when everything's dead. We love that. So many believed, and then someone to the Pharisees, and we read in John 11, as a result of this miracle, the raising of Lazarus, the conclusion of the religious elite is this, Jesus must die. That's amazing to me. Like, this miracle, of all the miracles, is undeniably, irrevocably, kind of the mark of power over everything. This man can raise the dead. I know, we got to kill him. <laughs> like, that makes no sense, especially among religious people. Why is it that way? Well, here's, Paul unpacks this for us, as, like he interprets this a little bit, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in a veiled way where Paul says this, look, wherever Christ shows up, the aroma of Christ, like the mark of Christ, is life for some and death for others. That's what Paul says. Same aroma, and for some it's the aroma of life, for others it's the aroma of death. And what's the difference? Like, okay, Christ shows up, what's the difference whether I become a worshiper or someone who wants to execute Jesus. What, what's the determinant? And here's the thing. For me to be in God's story as a worshiper, I must what? Over and over again, I'm told this, I must follow Jesus. And to, and to follow Jesus requires of every one of us in the room, every one of us, following Jesus requires what? Repentance. And what does repentance mean? It means I must be willing to kind of surrender the story in which I find myself turn and enter fully God's story. I have to do that. And if I don't do that and insist on remaining in my story where I'm kind of the author of my own story, if that's the life I insist on living, then the judgment of God is this. Oh, you want to live that life? Here's your judgment. You get to live that life. Like, oh, you don't want to follow me? Fine. Your judgment is this. You don't follow me. You get, to, you get to live your own life. So the, the, the high priest's conclusion, 
after this series of miracles, Jesus must die. Why? Because we like our story. Like these are the religious leaders. And what are they saying? You know what? We, look, in God's name, so A, we have the favor of God. In God's name, we have reputation. We have, there's a system in place. Uh, we're living righteous lives. We feel good about ourselves. And by the way, we're pretty well off and comfortable and in good standing in the community. Why would we want to leave that to associate with this man? I, no, no. And in fact, we're losing, our, we're losing our base. We're losing our market share. We're losing our demographic. People are following him. We got to kill this guy. Not only am I not moving, I'm doing away with him. So that, and that's exactly what happens. So here's the thing. When you encounter the real Jesus, and you will, <laughs> something has to die. Either you're going to kill Jesus, or you're going to leave the story that Jesus is asking you to leave, and you're going to put to death your own autonomy. And by the way, this doesn't happen like once in your life. It happens over and over again, right? For me, there's a moment when, though I want to be an architect, I need to let go of architecture and change majors and change states and change life. Like, I had to let go of that. My, my love of, like, I wanted to build this. I wanted to design it. No, I let go. There have been times when I've had to let go of, uh, like, financial security. There have been, been times I've had to let go of vacation, uh, vacation, vocation. Like, oh yeah, I want to be a, a Bible teacher at a remote Bible college in Alaska on the Copper River and uh, when I'm not teaching, hunt salmon and kill bears. That's my life. And then, no, oh, actually, no. I have to let go of that. Not once, often. And there's the thing, you come to these crossroads and either you say yes or no. But if you say no, you're functionally, you're putting Jesus to death and that's the, that's the point here. So the glory is emerging and in the theme of the glory emerging, here's Jesus. Look, you cannot like cher cherry pick and use me as a commodity. Like I can't, I can't just be your financial counselor. You have to surrender your sexual ethic to me as well. I can't just be uh, your, your physician, your, your healer, I want your money. <laughs> Do you understand? Like, we're called to follow, wholly follow. And we'll learn this the rest of our lives, but either we do it or we don't. And when we don't, then we're missing out on God's story. So, that's the glory emerging. Now, uh, as this story intensifies, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. In John 12, Conventional glory is expected when Jesus shows up on this day, Palm Sunday. Conventional glory is expected. The evidence that this is glory time is all over John chapter 12. First of all, it's the Passover festival. And the Passover festival is the recollection of Israel's deliverance from slavery. So the most glorious festival was which festival? The Passover. Oh, and the Passover starting, and oh, Who's, come, who's coming into town on the Passover? The remembrance of deliverance, who's going to town? I know, the deliverer. Good news. The kids just did it, right? Palmer, Hosanna, which means what? Save now. Save from what? Oh, we all know. Save from Rome, man. 
Safe from taxation without representation. Safe from our feelings of alienation. Like this, like this culture isn't working for us. Save now. And here he comes. Hosanna. And then, verse 17 to 19, you see that not only Jews are at this festival, but because of the rising popularity of Jesus, Greeks are there too. And then, the whole thing is sealed in Jesus' own words, verse 23, John 12, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if Jesus says that, and, and, and I layer onto that statement, my understanding of glory, wow, inside the mind of the masses is this, whoa, this is it. We've been enslaved long enough. Now it's our time. The tables are going to be turned. Rome was up. Israel was down. Israel's going to be up. Rome's going to be down. We were poor. We're rich. We were sick. We're healed. We're on the bottom. We're on the top. Saved now. Awesome. They knew they had the momentum. They knew they had the leader with enough power. They knew he just raised the dead. They knew that he had speaking ability. And everyone's following him. And... He agrees because he just said it. The hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Wow. So the, the entire narrative reveals that our human heart views glory as a good thing and glory is a, is a good thing. But here's the problem. Glory isn't what we think. Like if we think back on the stories from Jesus, we think the glory is the wine. We think the glory is the bread. We think the glory is the light. We think the glory is the healing. We think the glory is uh, the resurrection. No. Don't miss this. It's key. The glory is wine that was water. <laughs> Bread that came after hunger. Light that came after darkness. Healing that came after sickness. Life that came after death. All of us in the room want to skip to the end of the story. We want the wine, the healing, the light, the life, the wealth, the house, the national pride, the freedom, the reconciliation, the end of human trafficking, the published book, the, the healthy children, the job you love, the end of war, whatever. <clears throat> and we think that the way to get there is to begin with the end in mind and go after it with full gusto, like you're going to climb a mountain or something. Like, I mean, if you want to climb right near, you, you just, you just do it, right? Here's my goal. Here's my equipment. Here's my training plan. Go. And I'm going to get stronger, and I'm going to stand on the top, and I'm going to visualize it, and I'm going to make it happen, and by God, I will summit. Except not by God. <laughs> because that's not how God works. 1996 Everest Expedition... They're after, they're, I mean, they're ready for glory for their clients. If you remember the story of Scott Fisher and those guys who perished in 1996. Yeah, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna make it to the top. Why? Because we have paying clients. And if we get paying clients at the top, their testimonial is going to result in exponentially more paying clients. And we are what? Set for life. Hey, it's 2 o'clock. It's our turnaround time. There's a long line still at the Hillary step. The whole thing has slowed down. We're not going to make it to the summit, and we're supposed to be turning around already. Let's go anyway. Glory. Except not glory. <laughs> Late departure for the summit. Darkness. A dozen dead before it's over. Here's the thing. 
God's intent is not for you to draw like on some map a goal and move heaven and hell to get there. No. <laughs> Conventionalism is, is, is fine if the goal is your goal. But here's the thing. God has something in mind for you that's far better than your goal. So if all you want is a little bit of health, a little bit of money, and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a happy life, a little bit of travel, go for it. But know this, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, the Holy Spirit desires for you not a little bit of this and that, and a, you know, a comfortable life and a house with a view. No. What does the Holy Spirit desire? Watch this. Things which your eye hasn't seen, which your ear hasn't heard, and which has not even entered into the heart of your imagination. In other words, God wants to do what? Beyond all that you could hope, ask, or even what? Imagine. Like, imagine your best life. And here's God. You're not thinking big enough. Yeah, but I, this is as big as I can think. Yeah, that's why you should stop thinking. <laughs> because what I have for you is better. I have glory. Yeah, not just a house, a home, a place of hospitality. Not just a job, a calling. Not just a marriage, real intimacy that's born out of suffering and hard conversations and confession and forgiveness and humility. Not just sex, intimacy, vulnerability, self-denial, service. Not just going to church, embodying in our life together, nothing less than Christ by being the presence of hope and justice and joy and healing and generosity and freedom and hospitality and a world thirsty for all of that. Like, you're thinking this way and God is saying, no, I have much more. And, but the disciples aren't thinking that way. They're thinking small. They're, this is what they're thinking. Finally, finally, hour has come. Jesus is going to be glorified. He said it many times. My hour has not yet come. Now he said it. My hour has come. Oh, this is the best news we could ever hear. I mean, we left everything to follow this guy. And to be blunt, as we've been following for the last three years, there are many times he's been annoying. Very hard to pin down, right? Spoke, he's spoken poetically and we're linear people. He's, he's, he's said things we don't understand. He's, he's done things we don't understand. He's loved our, our enemies. He's, he's, he's crossed social divides in ways that were entirely socially inappropriate. And we put up with all of it, but now. This is why we put up with it. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, and we were in on the initial public offering. Like, we are ground level. And now it's a movement. Great again. We're in. Well, would have been a great story if it stopped there in verse 23 of John 12. Hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So, who's got the swords? And let's do this, right? Rome, out. Israel, in. You guys, thrones for all 12 of you. We're going we're to fix this, man. We're going to fix the economy. We're going to fix the injustices. We're going to fix the oppression. We're going to make it right for everybody, and you're in. Who's in? We're in, man. Hosanna. Huh. Except it didn't stop in verse 23. 
Jesus goes on, he defines glory in verse 24. The hours come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Yes! Wait, I'm not done, says Jesus. Here's glory. Lest a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. That's, that's glory redefined. So what Jesus basically does here is he throws cold water on the disciples' aspirations by redefining glory. And then he lives it out in the next 72 hours. Glory is not coming into Jerusalem on a, on a horse or a, or a victorious camel or something like that. No, glory is coming into Jerusalem on a donkey because when a king is riding a donkey, it's a sign that he's laid down his weapons and he comes only in peace. Glory is not uh, saying, hey, since I'm the king, how about you guys uh, do me a favor and wash my feet? Glory is since I'm the king, how about I take uh, the garment and wrap it around myself, the garment of a servant, and, and, and kneel down and wash all your feet on the night that you will all leave me alone. And one of you will betray me and I'll wash your feet too, Judas. Because that's glory. Glory's a donkey. Glory's washing feet. Glory's praying in the garden, sweating drops of blood. Glory's suffering. Glory's self-denial. Glory's saying, God, I don't want what's on my plate right now. Nevertheless, not my will but yours. That's glory. And then glory is uh, when the soldiers come with swords, not fighting back. And then glory ultimately is this, defeating violence and hate by absorbing it. That's glory. <laughs> There's a ton to note in this, but two th the two things that are most important in the moment is this. This redefining glory is nothing new. Like, for there to be glory, it's always been the case, the seed must die. I mean, physically, it's the case. A seed doesn't reproduce unless it falls in the ground. When it falls in the ground, it, it sheds its outer shell, and then as the soil begins to warm and the days get longer, that outer shell that has been shed germinates, and the green breaks through the soil, and, and the cells begin to multiply, and then that seed becomes a glorious bulb. And if you look, I mean, if you look at the, the, the tulip fields up in Mount Vernon, you see all this glory right now. Maybe some of you have been visiting those recently, I don't know, but if you have, you see the, it's, there's no, it's a good word, glory. But if you see those tulip bulbs before they're in all their glory, to be blunt, they're nothing to look at. The bulb itself looks like a giant peanut covered in dirt, right? Who's in, who, you don't show them, you don't put them on the centerpiece, there's nothing to them until they reach their full potential and they only reach their full potential, hello, by falling ground and dying. And Jesus is revealing something here, that this is the way it actually is, death always precedes life. Because he goes on now, having said um, that the seed needs to die, he goes on, he says, actually, this is the way it is for everything. Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Another translation, he who seeks to save his life, what? Loses his life. He who loses his life, saves his life. 
So all Jesus is doing here is he's revealing the way it actually is. Death always precedes new life. And he's just applying it now beyond the realm of nature. He's teaching us that this is the way it is in our own lives. That here, and look, we, you have a story over here. You have a, de- a definition of success over here. You have, a, you have a life that you've built for yourself over here. And I'm asking you now to follow me. And there's some area over here that, where you have to say, not my will, but yours be done. And, 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 and this thing, I need something in me needs to fall on the earth and, and, and die in order that me, it might be raised kind of on new ground. So I mustn't be afraid of letting go. Letting go of success. Because God has told me to do the right thing, which might not result in outward success, but might result in failure. <laughs> Let it, letting go of, of image when confessing our sin or addiction means being seen for the broken people that we really are. Letting, letting go of our bitterness so that we might come to discover what God wants to teach us by helping us stand on the ground of, of forgiveness rather than bitterness. In other words, there's something here that I need to let go of. And if I'm unwilling to let go, then I'm the seed that refuses to fall in the soil. And if I refuse to fall in the soil, my true color will never be seen. The life that God has for me, beyond all that you could ask, hope, or even imagine, that life, I'll never know it. But the, I man, the good news of the gospel is this. There are underground seasons. And every underground season is the precursor to vibrancy and life. And so I've got to learn in the underground season to say, thank you, God, for what will come out of this. I don't like living underground. Thank you, God, for what will come out of this. New color, new life, transformation. Right here in the second row. Seasons. We all have them. My dad's death, a season underground leading to life. My job in Alaska that I never took, (laughs) a season in the ground, leading to life. Moving to Los Angeles after promising my wife when I proposed we would never live in Los Angeles, a seed falling to the ground, leading to life. First year here, a a season, very difficult, falling to the ground, leading to life. You underground right now? It's okay, it's okay. It's a season. But listen, it's a season what? Leading the life. And so as we close this morning, you know, I'd invite you to either uh, just share in these prayer books a way in which you're underground right now. God, I'm underground. Would you meet me in my health crisis? God, I'm underground. Would you meet me in our marriage? Would you meet me in our vocational decision? I'm underground. I, I don't see the light of day. It's okay. In prayer, know what the resurrection's coming. For some of you, you're beyond. You're not undergrounding where you were. Thank you, God, for how you've taken me into the light of day after my underground season. Whatever it is, this is why we gather. Because God is transforming us to be people not as beautiful as we can imagine being, but more. <laughs> and the only way there is by becoming seeds that go underground. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these moments. We now offer them to you as we respond. Just make, would you just speak by the power of your Holy Spirit to each one of us about these moments in our lives where we're underground. Whatever these moments are, Father, 
You're calling us to surrender our sexual autonomy. You're calling us to uh, financial issues. You're calling us to name our addiction. You're calling us to a job change. Or we're in the thick of it already. Whatever it is, we want to follow you because we know that the end of the story is new life and glory. Thank you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.